Well, it's, it's been great getting reports back from folks about uh, the study and ways that um, you're connecting some dots and realizing that Jesus Christ is bigger than you thought. Um, about 80% of uh, the church is in a small group, so there's 100-some small groups and uh, over 1,000 people that are participating in this. I know it's a big step for some of you. Uh, I want to I wanna thank you for taking that step. I hope that these uh, times and discussions are helpful and uh, purposeful and meaningful and that you are making some friendships. Uh, so much of the Christian life simply has to be done with others. We are to love one another, serve one another, encourage one another, pray for one another, confess our sins to one another. You, you can't do this stuff alone. And so um, we are intentional about inviting people into these kinds of small groups. And uh, the plan is in the next few weeks to roll out a couple additional study options for you, some in-house things that we're developing, one called Land of Faith, another uh, The Road to the Cross, all of this uh, sort of tied back to the recent trip to Israel. And uh, we have some other ideas for later in the fall, or I guess early next year. I just want to say we want to do everything we can to make it easy for these small groups to continue. I realize some of you signed up for six weeks and out, and that's perfectly legal, but know that we would hope that they would move forward. Well, what we are doing uh, in this study, in one sense, is putting together a puzzle, And we have been looking at various pieces of the puzzle, and collectively, as we pull all these pieces and put them together as they connect with each other, we get a a picture of Jesus. Now, some of you um, are having some challenges with this because you are discovering that there are other pieces to this puzzle that you did not realize before. Some of you have a different idea of the picture that's on the box, and so you're having a hard time putting it together because Jesus is, again, bigger than you thought he was. Others of you have pieces of the puzzle that actually don't belong, and you're trying to keep putting them in, and eventually you will realize that uh, you have some ideas about Jesus that don't line up with who Jesus is. In, in the last few weeks in sermons, I have been, been focusing on big ideas. The first message, I argued that we live in a Jesus-impacted world. That more than anyone else, Christ has shaped this world for the good. And, and he, he moved us in directions that, that have been positive as a human race. He elevated the status of everyone, especially the have-nots. His, his love for learning created a community that helped pull Europe out of the dark ages, that launched the scientific revolution and gave birth to higher education. His adjustments to our moral compass have, have upgraded humility and downgraded revenge. Right? We see that, that Jesus is, has shaped the world more than anyone else who has walked on this planet. Jesus has pushed us in positive directions. We live in a Jesus-impacted world. Secondly, last week we, we looked at a piece of the puzzle that dealt with the content of Christ's teaching. 
And I argued that there were many pieces to this puzzle, two big categories. One was what he taught us about how to live, right? that, the, that the ethics of the kingdom, right? the, the, the morals, the, the ideals that God has put in place or that God is first, others are second. That the way up is actually down. We are, we are to serve, not be served. That we're going to live forever. And that changes everything. And that we are stewards with God's resources. The opportunities that we have, the resources at our disposable, disposal are all ultimately His. And we are expected to use those in the ways that He has mapped out. Well, in... The second half of last week's message, I, I noted that there was a whole second component to Christ's teaching. And this is what Jesus had to say about Jesus. Christ was a frequent topic of his own messages. And, and indeed, th- this surprises people, but he made bold claims. Many people think that because Jesus lived simply, he had no money, he had no home, he hung out with the people that were, that were outcasts, right? He served, he sacrificed. Because of that way that Christ lived, many people think that, that like other moral and religious leaders and reformers, Jesus made very simple claims about himself. In fact, I said the opposite is true. Jesus made the biggest claims that could possibly be made. Jesus claimed to be God. He claimed to be present before creation. He claimed to be the one through whom everything was made. He claimed that all authority in heaven and on earth had been given to him. He claimed that he would return as judge over everyone. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The only way for you to be reconciled with God. I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. Jesus made the biggest claims that could possibly be made. And so I argued, look, he's he's framed this in a take it or leave it. All in or all out scenario. Jesus has made it clear that he's claiming to be God. And so our response is either to say, I believe that. I'm in. And our lives become about seeking him, loving him, his will, his glory, his plan. Or we say, I don't buy this. I don't think he is who he claimed to be. He knew he wasn't God, but he claimed to be God, which means he's a liar Or he thought he was God when he's not God, which means he is profoundly mentally ill. Those are the options. The early church said, out deus, out homo malus. Jesus is God or a bad man. C.S. Lewis adjusted that a little bit in the 20th century and said Jesus is Lord, liar, or lunatic. Last Sunday night in a lecture, I suggested that People have added a fourth category. They have suggested that perhaps he's a legend. And if you were at the lecture, you know this. If you weren't at the lecture, I, I said, um, <laughs> no, he's not. Okay? 
First of all, we can, we can trust the New Testament documents for their history. I'm not arguing at this moment that, that they are the Word of God. I'm simply saying the, the evidence, the historical evidence and support for the New Testament is off the charts. But let's set that aside. As a matter of fact, let's set aside all the writings from the 1st and 2nd century that were written by Christ followers. We can recreate the New Testament just from the correspondence that we have of letters being written back and forth between people, 1st and 2nd century. Let's set that aside. If we just look at the the documents that we have from Roman and, and Jewish historians who are hostile to the story, okay, not talking about those Jewish historians who actually are, are more persuaded. Right? Take a step back and realize many, not many people were writing history 2,000 years ago. Right? There were no 24-hour news channels, no bloggers. Right? I mean, th- there were no newspapers. There was very little paper. You wrote on animal skins or papyrus reeds. You had to make your own ink. People didn't just write things. You had to go to a lot of effort to write. And and those people who were writing history were usually writing about Roman leaders or battles. They weren't writing about about itinerant preachers, uneducated carpenters who suddenly had emerged for just a brief period of time. They weren't writing about that. And, And most of what people wrote has not lasted. Right? The animal skins didn't last. The ink didn't last. The papyrus fell apart. Nevertheless, If we simply look at those documents that we have from Roman and Jewish historians, we have enough information about Jesus to establish that he lived in the first century, that he was a provocative teacher, that there was questions about who his father was, that he performed miracles, or as the Jews would say, he was a sorcerer, he had had evil power. That, that, that he claimed to be God, that he was crucified for this claim, and that, that this, in spite of some uh, efforts to sort of make this thing die, his followers believe he came back to life, and in spite of the persecution against them, this story rapidly spread throughout the Roman Empire. Jesus is not a legend. If you're going to write Jesus off as a legend, you basically have to be prepared to, to say, we don't know anything about anything more than 500 years ago. We've got great evidence for Christ. Which means we're left with the dichotomy I set up before. He's either God or he's a bad man. So, last week I said, I'm betting my life that he's God. I think you should also. And I invited you to come back and said, uh, bring your friends. We'll look at this again, another piece of the puzzle. Today, we're looking at what Jesus did. Now, we're going to be in John 9, so if you want to turn there, I invite you to do so. As you are doing that, let me note a couple things. First of all, Jesus did many things, okay? He, he revealed God. He, he loved people. He taught with authority. He, he showed us how to sacrifice. He showed us what a perfect life looks, looks like. He died in our place. Jesus did many things. We're looking today at what 
he did that revealed his supernatural powers. Okay, so we're simply looking at his supernatural powers, his ability to perform miracles. Secondly, I want to say it's important as we look at these pieces of the puzzle that you keep the big picture in mind. And the big picture is that Jesus is God. He he existed eternally as God. He was there before creation. Everything was created through him. At a certain point in time, he added humanity to deity. He added manhood to godhood. While remaining fully God, he became fully man. We can't do the math. His his nature is a mystery. It's beyond us. We can't figure it out. But he did that in order to come down, live and love and teach and, and, and reveal God and principally to die in our place so that we could be redeemed, reconciled, adopted into the family of God. We could, be, we could get back on plan A. So we've got to keep that in mind. We're just looking at pieces of Christ today. And so we're looking at the piece of his miraculous powers. And we're doing this by looking at John 9. Last week we were in John 8. This is where he made that um, uh, huge claim to be... Um, I am. Right? I, I said God has many titles, has one name. The name of God is Yahweh, or this word I am in Hebrew. And this was so sacred that the Jews wouldn't, not only would they not say it, they wouldn't write it. And, and when Jesus was in a little uh, tussle with the Pharisees, he goes so far as to say, before Abraham was, I am. And they understood this claim, picked up stones to try and put him to death, right? This was unthinkable. So we're just continuing right along. John, that was John 8, the end of John 8. We're now um, in the beginning of John 9. I'm going to read the entire chapter for you. John chapter 9, uh, starting with verse 1 all the way to the end. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it in the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, No, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes open, they demanded. He replied, The man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked. I don't know, he said. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. 
Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed and now I can see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner do such miraculous signs? So they were divided. Finally, they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he's a prophet. The Jews still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son? They asked. Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it now that he can see? We know he's our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind, but how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for already the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, He is of age. Ask him. A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, Whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I've told you already. You did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, You are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses. But as for this fellow, we do not even know where he comes from. The man answered, Now that's remarkable. You do not know where he comes from. Yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly man who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What? Are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Christ's unique powers are displayed so that people will realize that he is God. There's a lot going on in this passage. There's there's much that we could profitably unpack and meditate on. I want to make a key point. The key point is that Christ's unique supernatural abilities are on display so that people will realize that he is God. When they ask Jesus, who sinned to make this man born blind, Christ's response is to say, neither this man nor his parents sinned. This happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. 
This man was blind so that Christ, God, could display his power and give him his sight. Miracles are a big topic. If they were the topic for today's message, I would head down a different path. Briefly, let me just acknowledge that some of you don't know what to do with miracles. You're a little bit um, confused. You're a little bit skeptical, uh, maybe a lot skeptical, right? I'm an educated person. I live uh, post-enlightenment. I'm a scientist. I understand how these things work. These people were, were gullible. They, were, they, they don't know what we know. They could easily be misled, but I can't. Miracles don't happen. Some of you may be in this camp. Some of you are leaning in this direction. And so let me just acknowledge, yes, that kind of thinking is out there. David Hume, the 18th century Scottish uh, philosopher and skeptic, very famously said, miracles don't happen. We all know that. So the miracles in the Bible didn't happen. I would want to point out that that's wonderful circular reasoning, right? He doesn't, hasn't proved that miracles don't happen. He announced it. It was a statement of his faith. Miracles don't happen. So the miracles in the Bible didn't happen, okay? If you want to prove that miracles can't happen, you would have to, you would have to prove that we live in a closed system, right? That there's nothing transcendent, that there is no, no lawgiver beyond the laws of nature, Hume does not do this. Additionally, it's worth noting that many people have tried to go into the Bible, into the New Testament, and take all the miracles out. They've said, Jesus didn't walk on water, right? He just knew where the sandbars were. Jesus didn't multiply food. He just convinced everybody to share. Jesus didn't calm the storm. He just predicted the weather, right? I mean, there's people that go in, and they take all the miracles out. And eventually, what they realize is that what they have left doesn't work, right? Why the crowds, right? You think a bunch of first century fishermen are, 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 don't know where sandbars are, have never seen one before, and are going to be easily misled when a carpenter walks on a sandbar and thinks this is a miracle, right? I mean, you, you think that the people are gullible. The, these people were not gullible, right? The, the message in the New Testament is not that they were quick to believe, it's that they were slow to believe, In John 9, this man who's been born blind can now see. And they go, well, it's not the same man. They don't believe believe that he's been healed. They go, it's a different man. They go get his parents. They they don't believe that these things could happen. Thomas is called Doubting Thomas because he didn't believe. When Paul preaches in Athens, he's talking about philosophy. He's talking about things. He's got all the Athenians with him. As soon as he goes to the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, they all go, mm, nope, doesn't happen. Right? In, in, in Peter's letters, he's always saying, we are eyewitnesses to these things. Right? I know you're not going to believe them. We were there. The people of the first century were no more inclined to believe in miracles than we were, than we are. So I, I just would it, just want to say, look, um, yeah, this is unusual stuff, and it's shocking stuff. So if you are 
disinclined to believe in miracles, I would try and say, you know what, we don't have answers to all of these things. Life is a little bit bigger than we might think. Jesus is bigger than we might think. By the way, there's another camp of you who are very much wrapped up in miracles. And if I was going to give a message on miracles, I would say to you, please understand (laughs) that miracles are not the main point. First of all, many things that people claim are miraculous are not miraculous. They're, They're likely hoaxes or just misunderstandings. Secondly, just as a data point, there's not many miracles in the New Testament. People think there's like miracles on every page in the Bible. Not many miracles in the Old Testament. Not many miracles in the New Testament. If you take out Christ's healing, which is the principal way he demonstrated his unique power and ability, if you take out his healing, what you're left with are eight miracles. Just eight. Five of them deal with food. He multiplies food, turns water into wine. Uh, Three of them deal with nature. He walks on water, he calms the storm, and he curses a fig tree. That's it. I mean, there's not that many. As a matter of fact, some people uh, argue that if Jesus was God, why didn't he do more miracles? There's not that many in there. But what I would want you to see is don't go to Jesus to get a miracle, right? That's not the way it works. The miracles point to Jesus. That's what we have unfolding in the New Testament. As a matter of fact, the word miracle is not used in the New Testament. The word that is used is the word sign. Jesus does all of these signs. And these signs are there to point to Jesus. I mean, what's the purpose of a sign? Not to point to itself. Right? A sign is pointing somewhere else. So somebody sent me a picture a while ago on the internet, big sign, and the sign says, Warning, this sign has sharp edges. Okay? Well, you look at it and you go, Well, this is stupid, because then get rid of the sign. Right? If you get rid of the sign, then, then you don't have to have a sign that says this sign has sharp edges. The sign has to do something other than talk about itself. The sign points beyond itself. We might be really happy if we find a sign. Right? If you're lost and you're driving around Chicago, you're trying to get back on 94, or you're, you're looking for a sign to get me back home, and you see the sign, then you're very happy. But it's not that you're happy about the sign. I mean, you don't stop and get out of your car and go hug the sign. The sign is there to point you to something beyond it. The the supernatural activities that Christ engages in are, are principally loving, gracious, kingdom, charitable activity, foreshadowings of of the way the world will work, the way the world was supposed to work. They are gracious acts by a loving, gracious person with unique power. And he does what he can do. But it's not about doing it. The, the, The true purpose for us is to see that he had this power. I mean, again, 
think about some of the miracles that we have here. Or just, just, just reflect. Jesus feeds people. But they get hungry again. Jesus heals people. But these people are going to die. This, isn't, this wasn't an ultimate fix. It, it wasn't about that. When, when Jesus calls Peter, he says to Peter, you know, early on, Peter, I think it's Luke 5, get, get, Peter's been out fishing all night, hasn't caught anything. He goes, yeah, go, go out a little bit deeper, right? So imagine, you're a fisherman, you've got a carpenter going, yeah, I got this figured out. Go out a little bit deeper. He did, they don't want to go out. We've been out all night. Yeah, just go out a little bit deeper. They go out deeper, right? They get so many fish that he has to call another boat over. The nets are ripping. Both of those boats start to sink. What happens next? Peter leaves the fish. Right? He swims to Jesus. It's not about the fish. It's not about it, the, the miracle was to point to Jesus. His character, his nature, his divinity. The, the, the supernatural wonders that we have in the New Testament are principally there so that people wake up to the reality that Jesus is God. Taken collectively, what we see in the New Testament is that Christ has power over sickness. He has power over death. He has power over evil, and he has power over nature. Effectively, Christ has power over everything. Who has power over everything? God. Jesus is God. This is another piece of the puzzle. The book is about Jesus. This is not a book that says, go be a better person. This is not a book that gives us rules that we're supposed to live by so that God will love us. This is a book that says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It is a book that pivots around Jesus. Long introduction pointing to Jesus. Jesus. And then stuff pointing back to Jesus. Should we do what Jesus said? Should we follow the rules that Jesus has mapped out? Should we try and embrace the ethic that he taught? Absolutely. He's God. He knows best. But what this book is principally saying is, (laughs) he's God. Bend your knee. Submit your will. Follow him. He is Lord. Next week, we'll be privileged to have um, the president of Trinity International University preaching. We're taking a one-week reprieve from our study so small groups can catch up. And then the following week, we're going to take another look at Jesus, another piece of the puzzle. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son. And we thank you for um, the perfect life that he lived. We thank you for the way he perfectly fulfilled prophecy. We thank you for the way he taught with authority. We thank you for the way he revealed perfectly you and your character. We thank you for the things that he had to say about himself. We thank you now for the ways he revealed uh, 
his divine power. I pray that uh, there would be clarity, that people today who know Christ as Savior and Lord would lean in ever more deeply to him. And I pray that those that don't would understand the very clear uh, take-it-or-leave-it scenario that has been established. Jesus is not a good teacher, not a moral prophet, not a leader, not somebody that we can follow. He is God. And that's the dividing line. Draw people to yourself, we pray. In your Son's name, amen.